Hello, and welcome to Sites and Sirens Back to Basic Podcast. My name is Dr. Christopher Sites. I'm an emergency physician, and I'm here with my brother, Jason Sites, who is a firefighter, paramedic, and RN. Together, we run Sites and Sirens, an emergency preparedness training company. Sites and Sirens is a National American Heart Association training center and EMS training company that specializes in NREMT exam prep. Our Back to Basics podcast was created to make what are sometimes complex medical topics easy to understand and retain for students of emergency care. Please like and follow us on your favorite podcast streaming service, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for joining us. I just think it was way easier being a doctor back then. Yeah. Like now I've got to know all these different things and all these different medications. And back then, you're just kind of like, mm, I think you have ghosts. Here's some cocaine. Ghosts? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And then you just basically Everyone was possessed. It was basically cocaine. It was just cocaine. Everyone was possessed. You gave them cocaine. They felt or better. Kill, or you probably put them I'm down. pretty sure. I may have read the history wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's how it was. I get it. Yeah. I get it. So, Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sex and Sirens Back to Basic podcast, a podcast where my brother, Christopher Seitz, an ER physician, and I, Jason Seitz, a nurse and firefighter paramedic. Oh, that's the first time I ever led with nurse. Ooh. I don't like that. Ooh. No, firefighter paramedic and also a nurse. Yeah, just on the side. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we take complicated, we usually take complicated medical topics, break them down back to the basics, make them easy for you guys to digest. Today, we're doing things a little bit different. As we warned you about a month ago, today we are doing our Q&A, our Ask Us Anything podcast. So we have asked you guys to send us in some questions. We've got lots of questions. We're going to try to get through a bunch and we're going to just kind of talk and answer your questions. We're going to try to do this once a, what do we say? Once a like quarter, a quarter like yeah, a once a months. quarter or so. So keep sending in those questions right now. The email to send those into is training at sitesandsirens.com. Yes. Send the questions. That might change soon. Maybe. A little teaser. Excitement. To be determined. About to happen. To All be right. determined? I mean, no, I guess it's been determined. It's to, be, to be announced. To be continued. <laughs> I don't know. What are you, what are you looking for? <laughs> All right. So we're just going to jump right in. Uh, first question. This person asked if, um, well, he said, wanted to thank you guys uh, for your podcast. I was told about the podcast a couple of days ago. I just got through a couple episodes. You put on a very entertaining podcast. Normally, most medical podcasts are hard to pay attention to because they're dry and monotone. I agree. Um, he said, on one of your episodes, being the PE episode, okay. I believe this is episode two for us, um, I wanted to bring my experience with a patient that had similar behavior as an example in the episode. Um, another tool, This is from Dave, Dave W., by the way. I won't give last names unless you guys ask me to. Um, I wanted to bring my experience with a patient with similar behavior. Another tool in our toolbox would be ETCO2, which would give us real-time reading on efficacy of patients, ventilation, and respiratory efforts because, as you mentioned, SpO2 can have up to a two-minute lag before it, ch- it changes. Uh, but someone who has a normal SpO2 experience in PE would be having that gas exchange, so ETCO2 below 35 could lean towards possible PE. And he's kind of talking about using ETCO2 um, as a – as another monitoring device during this, sure, yeah. during this episode. So for those of you who haven't listened to the episode, what happened was there was a call where the person did not present with any real signs of respiratory distress. She was tripoding, um, but it almost very much looked like a panic attack. SpO2 was 100% mm-hmm. and no chest pain or back pain. And it turned out that this woman developed a PE. It was a very harrowing call for me. Um, changed my outlook on, on the field quite a bit. But she had ended up having a PE and it was like, oh, my gosh. So what Dave's saying is, hey, you could have used ETCO2 to help you out there. Where were you then, Dave? I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) So so I did answer this question to him personally, too. I shot an email over to him. But one of the things with this is 
Yes, 1000%. Chris and I are firm believers in using end-tidal CO2 or capnography anytime you have a complaint that can even possibly be respiratory. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, like so that's such a bigger picture, and people just really do not take ETCO2 seriously. Right, I feel yeah. Like. They just don't. End tidal CO2 has been around for a super long time, and it supposedly should have been adopted kind of throughout EMS and emergency. It, but it just isn't. Like, we just don't it's use the, it as the much. It's other vital sign. Right. right. It's like, people don't. don't. We, we still, as much as it should be used all the time. So things we do use it for, I think that we're getting better at using it for, is in cardiac arrest. So entitled CO2 can help you essentially evaluate how well your chest compressions are uh, if you're giving adequate circulation with chest compressions and if you get ROSC. Entitled uh, CO2 with intubation. That's the other big one that we know about that, you know, if the entitled CO2 jumps up when we bag the patient after we put an endotracheal tube down, okay, we've got the tube in the right place. Yeah. But again, like you had kind of mentioned, so we argue that you should be using entitled CO2 with any of your respiratory patients. And there's a couple different reasons I'll just go over quickly. One is that it's real time. So you're measuring ventilation with entitled CO2. The pulse ox measures oxygenation um, kind of, kind of, <laughs> right? And we talk about that in some of our lectures. But you know, basically, the oxygenation of the tissues is what we assume the the SpO two is showing us, and that can lag, right? That basically only gives us one number as well. Like there is a there is a respiratory waveform that you can't you hear people say. Oh, it wasn't really good waveform, so I don't think they're necessarily hypoxic and that sort of thing. It's a pleth wave, right? Yeah, like- but entitled CO two doesn't lag, so entitled CO two is ventilation. So if you stop breathing. You don't get a reading anymore. And there's actually, you can actually essentially read the end tidal CO2 waveform uh, to help you see if there's obstruction, to help you see if there's hyperventilation, hypoventilation, if they're retaining CO2. We're not going to get into it right now, but yeah, absolutely. I think end tidal CO2 is a, it's a great huge tool. thing, a great tool. In this case, may have helped. I'm not so in, in this case, probably not personally, I, I believe, because I would have recognized the hyperventilation mm-hmm. 100%, but I knew she was hyperventilating. The issue was she was, you know, it wasn't going to tell me that there was this obstructive shock going on, that there's right. this PE happening, right? There's not going to tell me about an obstruction. It would have probably legitimized, I probably would have seen an increased speed of respirations and there a drop in CO2 because that would show mm-hmm. that she's hyperventilating. And that necessarily wouldn't show you an obstruction because if you have obstructive airway diseases like COPD or asthma, Sure, I, I mean waveform, but yeah, yeah it's not going to show you obstruction yeah, in the lungs, obstruction. yeah, like yeah, a pulmonary exactly. embolism, airway so. obstruction because entitled CO two is measuring ventilation. If you have an airway obstruction, like with asthma, COPD, right. yes, you're going to see changes in the waveform. Um, this is a good chance for us to plug our National Registry Prep Program. So we have you know an entire lecture on entitled CO two, how to read these things. Um, so again, if you're studying for the National Registry, check out our program. It's going to help you quite a bit. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for the sake of answering the question today, absolutely, we should be using entitled CO two. I think for any respiratory complaint, any respiratory complaint. In this case, I don't know if it would help or not. Well, you know, and the thing is anything. about entitled, like it, it's a. I, I think we don't tend to like it because it's not like a true diagnostic tool to us because we can't be like this means it's like an EKG like this means he's having a heart attack so I'm going to do this sort of thing it's really just a, a a diagnostic tool for down the line and for watching trends and things that are a little bit more long term so I think it's helpful if we come and we have a capnography waveform to give you yeah absolutely. that just kind of helps legitimize our report and give you a little bit more of a set point of what's going on it's just like any yeah. other vital sign right it gives us a good set point well I would argue to, even the EKGs that way so I just guessed on guest starred on a on the EMS 2020 podcast and we were looking at an EKG that again one of my arguments for this EKG which in the in the beginning people were trying to say 
you know, Monday morning quarterback, like, oh, yeah, if you see here, it did show signs of ischemia. It's like, well, I don't know if it really did or not. But over the course of time, as they continue to repeat EKGs, they saw changes and that was important. So, again, all of these things are pieces to the puzzle. So yeah. the more you know, tools and things that you can use that are going to be quick, non-invasive, um, they're going to just add more data to your you know diagnostic abilities. So. And this is what I love about the EMS field is like. Okay, we're not Monday. I don't feel like he's Monday morning quarterback. Oh, no, no, no. You know yeah. what I mean? But, like, it's great to, like, be able to have discussion with people, like, outside of my department and outside of, like, to just be like, hey, like, what about this? Like, could we, if if I were with you, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like Dave was in the ambulance with me now. Right, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, right. If I were with you, like, maybe we would have shot for the CO2 thing. Maybe I would have been a little bit more suspect towards this. And that's why, yeah. you know, bouncing this stuff off and engaging in your education is so important. Yeah, so, definitely. thank you, Dave, for that question. I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> no, um he actually sent in another question. I want to cover it right away. Um, still regarding that call, he said, well, more just regarding pulmonary embolisms in general. He said um, the use of heparin. He goes, I he has had heparin in a, our formulary protocol for STEMIs. And he's wondering if the administration of heparin would give more time in a PE so that TPA or interventional radiology could be used. So remember, a PE, guys, is a blockage. Uh, a embolus, so it could be air, it could be a fat globule, it could be a thrombus, but it's blocked the vessels in the lungs and it's cut off oxygen supply to our lungs themselves. So they can't, uh, that tissue can't perfuse and your your lungs will stop working. Like you'll have necrosis, similar to what you have like in a heart attack when you have blockage in a vessel. So what he's wondering is if we give this blood thinner, kind of like we do in STEMI or when someone's having a heart attack, we give aspirin as a as an antiplatelet to kind of ease flow. If we give heparin, would it give us more time, you think, to get to that PE? So I'll let you answer that one. So so theoretically, yes. And I'm actually I'm surprised that it's still in his formulary. Um, because I think what we've found so I don't we don't do this as much anymore. When I was in training, we would start someone on heparin who had a pulmonary embolism or start someone on heparin who had um you know, uh, you know, an end STEMI or, you know, or a STEMI or something like that. that needed blockage, to go. Yeah. Uh, we don't even do that much, th- that much anymore, even for STEMIs and stuff now. So it's really not heparin. We're kind of going more toward these, uh, not clot busting drugs, but they, they, they just work a little bit differently. So heparin is not something that is going to, um, relieve a pulmonary embolism or make the clot, you know, disappear or disintegrate. All heparin does uh, based on its mechanism is it thins the blood out so that there's not more clot forming where the clot currently is. So the idea is if I'm 98% blocked and I have symptoms. Saving that hep- 2%. Yeah, heparin is kind of preve- hopefully preventing the rest, the other 2% to start to get blocked. It's not going to bring it down to 95, 90, 85, you know, anything like that. Well, one thing that we talk about with like when we go over heart attack and stuff like that, even with the use of aspirin, like it's not even why aspirin and heparin and blood thinners and, and antiplatelets and stuff are useful isn't just because of that clot area. If I can ease the flow in the other vessels that feed that area, mm-hmm. like I, I'm preventing further. So if I if my heart's already under stress or my lung, that area is already under stress and you start having blockage of flow and stuff like that, you, you're at risk for developing more clots and a, additional to that clot, but also additional clots from that clot. Mm-hmm. So I think giving heparin, giving antiplatelets like aspirin, 
that eases the flow everywhere else just so that you're making sure that you're not making the problem worse, right? So right. we kind of contain the problem from making it worse, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. Yeah. And the thing is with, uh, so like, you know, now, especially with pulmonary embolism, we use Alteplase uh, or TPA. We're trying to get away from the term TPA and use Alteplase because that's the actual medication. But um, those actually break the clot down. So we really kind of moved away from using heparin, even in even in heart attack situations, only because um, there are other medications that I think do a better job that work a little more acutely. And heparin has its own issues with once I've started someone on heparin, well, then they can't have certain procedures and they can't have other ones. So. so now again, you, now so you've thinned the blood everywhere and you've got to deal with that. Yeah, mechanism. yeah. So you're not you're not wrong to say heparin could potentially. But I think hep, we're moving away from heparin being an acute medication that we give. You mm-hmm. know, now, that, now that we have some of these other like well-vetted, well-researched um, clot-busting drugs and, and other things like Berlinta is another one that we'll give in, you know, with, with heart attacks and things like this. So again, yeah, I mean, theoretically, I think heparin would help um, maybe potentially stop things from continuing to get worse. Uh, but it's going to be more of a longer term strategy. I think in the acute setting, it's probably not going to really do you much good. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. Why don't you jump on one of these questions starting here? Here's one. I have trouble telling the difference between you guys when listening to the podcast. I mean, I think I have a much deeper, richer voice. I mean, that's not true. But no. I mean, you want to do a little duet so people can really we understand can the difference? Yeah. No, this is actually funny because we don't think we have the similar voices, but in my mind, I sound completely different than you. I in my mind I sound a lot like Grover. Really? Yeah. Oh. In my mind, you sound a lot like the teacher from uh what is it? Peanuts. <laughs> Just kidding. No, so th- we have heard this before. We don't think we don't I mean, I'm sorry, we can't do uh, anything about it. Uh, I'll <laughs> change my voice. But this is actually funny. I'll just quickly show the story. Do you the remember rest of the podcast? I'm just like, okay, Chris, let's work <laughs> No, but I don't know if you remember this. So I was in college and my girlfriend at the time um had called me and said, Hey, can we hang out? And I was like, ah, you know what? I'm, oh, I'm up, I'm up at, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm up at Wayne state in Detroit. And she was in, at a different college at the time. I said, ah, you know what? I, I can't today. I got a lot of studying to do that sort of thing. So later she tries to call me, but she accidentally calls my parents' house. Um, and Jason answers. And again, like, <laughs> I this forgot is, about yeah, this do you remember this? Story, so, yeah. so Jason answers and apparently we sound a lot alike. She thinks it's me. And she's like, oh, what are you up to? And he's like, I'm just playing video games, like hanging <laughs> yeah. out. And he's like, he's like, oh, wow, I don't know why she's checking. I don't know why, don't know why my like, older brother's girlfriend's checking up on yeah. to see what I'm up to. But uh, yeah, I'm playing video games. And she's like, are you serious right now? And then she hung up real quick. And I remember calling you and being like, hey, <laughs> so your girlfriend thinks <laughs> you're, you're playing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that you're playing yeah, video and games. And she was quite so. embarrassed. But yes, uh, yes. Apparently we do sound like, I apologize. Um, there's nothing we can do about it. Um. But thanks for the feedback. <laughs> just kidding. That, just that kidding. came from Kendra. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Um, let's see. Garrett G asked um, specifically what my education path was like because of Medic to RN Bridge and wanted information on that. Now, we okay. shot a preview of this episode where we were like trying to do this and I like talked for like an hour and a half about <laughs> <my> <laughs> education. So we're like, we're going to stay away from that. Um, but he wants to know what both of our education paths were like. Um, he recommended a Q&A podcast like this. So we're taking your advice, Garrett. And then he also says our Simply a Podcast to talk about yourselves would be awesome. So we're going to ask some quick questions to each other to paint the picture. First of all, my education path. I took an RN Bridge program called Excelsior. It's online. I would challenge tests. 
And then I'd study for like months. They'd send me textbooks. I'd study on my own. And then I'd go into like a Pearson View Center, similar to when you take a national registry. And I would take adaptive tests to test for credit. Um, I was able to do that and leverage my clinical experience as a paramedic because you have to have years of experience. I was able to do that. And then you have a very challenging and aggressive clinical exam at the end where you're with real patients and you fly out and you do like this whole deal. Mine was a little bit different because COVID kind of interrupted it. So I had some online stuff too, but you basically have like a practical national registry that these guys would be similar to, you know, in their paramedic that you got to do, but then you also got to go in and for like a full day, two days really um, be with patients and you're just constantly tested on like following the right steps and treating any type of thing that they could have. So pretty scary. That test right there has a 60% attrition rate, which is kind of spooky. That was one of my big turnoffs to the program. I was like, whoa, like even if I get through all of it and I pass the program, this final test is 60% that I have the NCLEX, like that sucks. But uh, if I can do it, I know you guys can. And there's there's resources out there to help. And you guys can always contact us too. That, that test is called the CPNE and it's specific to Excelsior College. But if you guys ever want advice on that, we do specialize in test prep. This is kind of what we do. So, so let us know and we'll help you out. But yeah, would I recommend it? Um, it depends. I mean, if you're the type of person who can self-study and you can challenge tests like that, I would say that I'm not a test taker and I was able to do it. So it just really depends on if you have the, do you need to have a teacher in front of you kind of encouraging you and pushing you constantly? Are you the type of person that can get up and study, you know, whether you got someone cracking the whip or not. So if you, if you think you can do that, I'd be happy to talk to you guys more about it. You guys can send us messages and emails to Sight and Sirens and uh, we'll walk you through it. But that that was my education path. What was your education path like? Well, by the, beyond that, like I am a firefighter paramedic. It's right. Yeah. <laughs> so like I went to the academy. I did the normal thing. I did. So a lot of people can do this in different orders, but I did EMT and then I did the academy and then I did paramedic. And then I worked paid on call for a while and then full time since mm-hmm. um, and have uh, just about a decade of, of experience in the fire service now. Cool. So what about you? So I got a bachelor's degree in biological sciences. Boring. Right. So it's a BS degree in BS. I think that's what my diploma says. a bachelor's of science. Yeah. In. A bachelor's of science in biological sciences. So then I went to medical school. BS. <laughs> so then I went to medical school. Because where else would you go? With right, that, right. Right. Exactly. So I went to medical school for four years and... Then right if on. you guys can see, if you guys are watching on the video cast right now, the look of just despair. And then I went to medical school. <laughs> All right, I forgot. So I got a bachelor's degree. It was great. Then I went to medical, medical school. school. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And then from there, I went to residency. So I did emergency medicine residency, which was three years. And then I got board certified in emergency medicine. And I've been working as an ER physician. So actually, the first two years I worked uh, under like I said, a hospital contract for a couple of years um, in the Detroit area. And then I started doing travel medicine. So I've been doing travel medicine for the last three and a half, four years. Uh, I've got like 15 state licenses and I fly to different parts of the country and help in ERs that need the help and that sort of thing, which has been Which I think has given cool. you like a well, he's given him a wealth of experience because he's been in a ton of different ERs compared to most docs. Yeah. And he's traveled all different areas in the country, which is really helpful, I think. Yeah. And it's cool because like a lot of the stuff stays stays the same. Like diabetes in North Carolina is the same as diabetes. It's not in Michigan. different. Yeah, that's weird. You know, but then like the system part of it can be very different or resources. That's that's the one thing right. I run into a lot is like, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this baby's coming. Call OB. And they're like, we don't have, we don't OB. have OB. And I was like, we're oh. in Hickville. <laughs> right. So then it's Here's me. Pliers. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's, that's, that's kind of cool. But um, I'm actually looking at maybe transitioning. Away oh, from some good for you. Yeah. Into a woman. 
No, not oh, not that kind no, of transition. That kind of transition. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, okay, yeah, because no. we have talked before. No, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to transition from uh, doing a little less, a little less clinical, and start doing uh, some more of of our educational stuff too. So well, that's the other thing is that most of our time, I think, if we're not at work, it's taken up doing stuff like this. Mm-hmm. So we run this podcast, and we also run our national registry tep test prep program, yep. uh, which helps people through school for EMT and paramedic and advanced EMT. And we yep. deal with a lot of students. We film fun educational videos. We also work on AHA training center stuff on the side, but uh, yeah, yeah, this is a, uh, we stay busy. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Personal life. Go. Tell, what makes you, you No, tell me about your family and tell me about your hobbies. Go. Okay. So I am married and I have three kids. I have a seven-year-old boy and two twin girls. Uh, so obviously I'm just busy all the time. And they are identical twins. They're identical twins. Yeah. They're blonde haired, blue eyed, identical twin girls. It's just horrible. (laughs) Like I, I, they're five and I don't, that I need to stop there or I'm going to have to lock them in a basement for 18 more years. (laughs) So anyway, but yeah, so I, um, do that hobbies. Um, I don't know. I like to, we, I travel a lot. My wife and I like to travel. Um, I like doing more physical sports stuff too. So, haven't been out in a while, but like I said, scuba diving and, you know, mountain biking, hiking and that sort of thing. What I enjoy. Cool. And I started picking up golf because I'm a doctor and apparently that's what everybody else does. That's and I can't have do, friends right? unless I golf and I'm really bad at it. I'm really so. embarrassed that I don't really know anything about golf. Like yeah. I don't even no, know I like know. golf lingo. Right. And I feel like people will be like, oh yeah, you like, they know I like outdoor stuff. They're like, oh, you like golf, golf right? right? And I'll be like, oh, I'm like, papa, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. You're papa. But yeah, I know. So I'm, I picked up golf. And when I say I picked it up, I mean, I picked it up in the last like three weeks and it's not going well. So that's, <laughs> I'll probably be dropping this. I'll probably be quitting that soon. So, so cool. But yeah. What about you? Uh, I'm married and three days ago I bought a cat. So <laughs> that's right. super, super so depressed. Things are no, going great. <laughs> uh, we did just get a cat. His name's Hobbs. Mm-hmm. He's really cool. That's great. He's 10 months old. He looks that's like great. a tiger. So we named him Hobbs. Cool. Kelvin and Hobbs. Yep. I don't know. That's kind of a big part of my life right now. Okay. All right. I didn't want it to be. I wanted to give you this cat not to be a big deal, but right. I'll be honest with you. It's kind of a big deal. It's yeah, been kind yeah. of fun. I just bought, I spent $200 on this like wall system that he can climb on. It has a suspension. Are you it has a suspension bridge. I got to show it to you. It's crazy. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm, my, so I might need a. Things have gone rapidly downhill for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> intervention. Right. No, but uh, no, I've been married uh, to my wife for, we're coming up on seven years. Um, yeah, I don't know. I hobbies, hobbies. I I'm a big mountain biker. So we actually just moved recently, very close to a metro park in my area that has trails that I love. So like we spend a lot of time in that park. We do like kayaking there, um, fishing. Not we don't catch anything. It's just sort of like we cast out and then just sit there. <laughs> just sit there. But like mostly just being in a kayak. <laughs> um, but I I mountain bike probably four or five times a week. I yeah. love mountain biking. Uh, I'm a big scuba scuba diver. I'm a I'm a dive master. So when I can rope Chris into coming with me. We go out and scuba dive because mm-hmm. you need a partner or you can die. True. Um, and that's really the only reason check why out, I dive with them. <laughs> check out episode, I don't know, was it? Like episode three, three, I believe, was our diving emergency dive podcast. Emergency, we yeah. talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I'm a big board gamer. I have over... Uh, I, now you don't I, want to share. I'm kind of a sad person. <laughs> I have about You're like, I play board games and I have a cat. <laughs> so like these board games though that I play, they're not like... I'm not playing Monopoly, people. Are you trying right? I'm not playing Scrabble. You're, they're no, really what cool I'm saying is, games. it's probably worse than you think it is. Like, it's oh, yeah. not even like I'm entertained with so Yahtzee. Do you, okay, here's the big question basis. then: Do you paint the little figurines? And if the game requires, <laughs> okay, painting the figurines. Okay, 
No, not really. No, I, I, I had done it in the past. I really have not done that. I don't play any tabletop games like that where you like, it's a war. I'd love to. If there's someone out there who wants to get into it, I would. I'm like a, a hardcore nerd when it comes to game. I love like tactical and strategy board games. Like yeah. we just, my wife and I play them. My buddies come over. We play them. We have game nights. I built my own gaming table. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a life-size Batman in my basement. I'm big into That's comic true. books. That's true. He does. Um, yeah. I'm like very nerdy. Yeah. Cool. But you know what? I'm not, I'm not ashamed. That's good. I am ashamed that I'm so into my cat though. <laughs> like, <laughs> Fair enough. Because I got weird. That's when things I feel like tipped over to. Three days ago when you got Uh-oh. Like it was fine for you to have a life-size Batman in your basement. Like a life-size statue of Batman. That's fine. Right. But you bought a climbing system for your cat with a suspension bridge. I might need some help. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. I'll keep that around. Um, we'll talk after this. Anyway, next question. Um. Okay, so here's a great one. This comes from... Stephen R. And he says, I keep getting easy questions wrong on tests because I use CAB or circulation airway breathing versus ABC Mm -hmm. airway breathing circulation in the assessment. How do I know when to use which? I thought it was always CAB now. Okay. We actually have gotten this question a couple different times. So I'm going to quickly blow through it right now. So it is always, if you want to like the blanket statement is we got kind of confused when the American Heart Association, some of these organizations went to CAB, which is circulation airway breathing. It was basically you're just checking a pulse before you would check airway and breathing. Well, kind of, I mean, that, that's what, like, that's, that's what, what people thought it was. Became yeah. yeah. So it's more for, so it's always airway breathing circulation. It is always ABC. The times that it's not going to be ABC cardiac arrest okay so in cardiac arrest you're going to go right to circulation and that doesn't really necessarily mean checking for a pulse it just means doing chest compressions right like yeah but you won't know of, that they have che- that's yeah, what confuses yeah. because you don't know so what i usually say is if your patient is unresponsive mm-hmm. you can shift to and, and you suspect cardiac arrest you can shift to a cab yeah, cab but the thing is like i think the real question here is on test questions because like in the right. field like we know we're going to check airway we're going to check breathing we're going to check circulation that all kind of happens at once anyway right I, if i'm coming up to you i can see if your airway is patent right if you're talking to me i know you're breathing i know you have a pulse like if you're unresponsive i might hear snoring respirations as i'm approaching or whatever right? i'm going to kind of check a pulse look at your airway do all that at once right right so like this isn't a problem in the field like we don't get like people are like i've lost so many patients because i went with abc <laughs> right, it doesn't yeah, right, right right but in test questions, in test questions, CAB be, will only be when they're talking about cardiac arrest or under cardiac like, arrest, CPR, CPR, and yeah. it's like like a like a obvious AHA type question, right? Right, yeah. like that. That is, in my experience, I've never seen outside of there. Like, always go with ABC. Nursing is all ABC, all that stuff yep. until they ask you a very specific cardiac arrest question that you can tell like this is a bls question mm-hmm, right this is a basic life support question it's asking me about cpr okay in that case i'm going to lead with checking for a pulse first yeah because the idea there is just to save time and to concentrate on compressions being the most important thing right they're trying to get you to realize that it only matters if they have a pulse right now because if they don't have a pulse we know that they're not breathing we don't have to worry well, about and that's that that's the Jump other right on the chest that's the thing too is that people were getting a little confused because even in cardiac arrest when the patient didn't have a pulse they might have some like Agonal. Agonal breathing. And then people got confused. And that, all that did was delay chest compressions, right? So CAB for that. The other time, the only other time we're going to use CAB, and we hear this all the time too, is in trauma. But not just trauma as a blanket statement. Like if you fall off a ladder and you break your leg, I don't go to CAB, yeah. all right? I'm still doing ABC. When I'm doing CAB in trauma, 
is if I'm tr- if a patient appears to be exsanguinating a life like threatening mass a life threatening massive hemorrhage so they've got blood spewing from like splurting from their leg yes put compression tourniquet that and then move on to the airway right, and right. the rest of the stuff that's a good point but that's the only time so people get really confused because CAB because they're like well he's trauma. bleeding though like if I if I write right. a question guys and I write the question and it's like Nancy. You know, fell off a ladder, clutched her chest, fell off a ladder, is now bleeding. And like, what do you assess first? It's still going to be. It's still airway. Airway. I didn't make that sound like a CPR. Right. And I didn't make it sound like a life threatening bleed. Now, if I say, as you approach, you see blood spurting from her jugular. Right. Like, or, right. Right. Or whatever. You know what I mean? Like now it's She's like, okay, gone. well, I got to get this. We're not triaging. No. So, so yeah, then it's going to be put direct pressure on that wound and then go ahead and yeah. move, move down. So again, so in, tr- so cardiac arrest, CAB, and then life threatening, massive hemorrhage, exsanguination in trauma, CAB. Everything else is still ABC. ABC. So yeah. expect for the test purposes, nine times out of 10 on your test, it will be ABC. Yeah. Cool. All right. This question looks like it's for me. It says, what is your workout routine? You look amazing. Nope, so, nope, Angela, that's, that's a really that's great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Okay, so this this question comes from everyone ever all the time. Okay. And it is, my test shot off at such and such a number of questions. Okay. Did I pass or did I fail? Sure. All right, we're going to address this. We have a video on this. Can we put a link to the video? Yeah, we'll in do this? that. Yeah. Link to the video on our NREMT stuff. All right. So, on adaptive testing... Um, Adaptive testing works differently than normal testing. All right. Mm-hmm. There's two types of tests. And this is for the, we're, we're, this is the national registry. Exam. Well, really like the well, NCLEX adaptive. is adaptive. Right. I think MCATs are adaptive. Like any medical test now is adaptive. Yeah. It's really frustrating because they're not fun to take. Like do not think for a second that we are like fans mm. of this test. No. <laughs> we prepare you for it. We don't love taking them. All right. So you have two types of tests that you, that you're familiar with linear testing. That's what you've always done. Now there's adaptive testing. Linear testing is, there's yes. a, let's say there's 100 questions. A set amount of questions, there's 100 questions. You need a certain amount, right? You get 70 right, you got 70%. That's passing. We, we label what passing is. Maybe it's 95, whatever. But your brain then triggers when you're taking these tests to think, I'm getting questions right. I'm getting questions right. I must be doing good. Right. Okay. Adaptive testing is quite literally the opposite. Mm-hmm. Adaptive testing has levels of questions. Let's say there's levels one through 10. It might start you off at its baseline let's say it needs you to pass what it needs you to be hitting level five questions it'll ask you a level it'll ask you a level six question right off the bat if you get it wrong it'll ask you a level five question if you get it right it'll ask you a level six question if you get that wrong level five if you get that wrong maybe another level five if you get that wrong maybe another level five you have not failed the test yet right you're still answering questions at the level five thing. Right. So you've how got these three of the four questions right. wrong, but you have not. Yeah, right. exactly. And, and what happens is how it works out. And the national registry has said this, and I can, I can show you the video where they say it out loud. 99% of people who take an adaptive test will get 50% of it wrong. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how well you did. You'll right. get 50% of the questions wrong because they might ask you, cause you're a doc. They might be asking you level 10 questions the entire time. And you're jumping from nine to eight, to seven and then back up to eight to nine to ten again you're just kind of jumping back and forth back and forth back and forth but you've been above that passing line the well, entire thing, time so if you look at it this way let's say let's level five is passing they ask me a level 10 question and i get it right. wrong and then they ask me a level nine i get it wrong and then an eight and i get it wrong then a seven i get it wrong then i get a level six right and it goes back up to seven and i get that one right and it goes back to eight and then i get it wrong wrong i've gotten like i said like eight questions wrong and two right 
but I'm still like two points above what that right. quote unquote like passing level is. So if you walk out of your exam feeling like you failed it, that's that's you, fine. You should, yeah, because you right? because like you're used normal. to fifty percent being a failing grade, right? Right. right. So and that's the problem is our brain tricks us in these adaptive tests where uh, there's been adaptive tests. So for my nursing program, every test I took was adaptive. Yeah. It was a horrible way to right. like after every time. But Jason I'll tell took you, a test for his exam, I call you. Say, I failed it. I didn't know a single question, and then like. Three hours later, you'd be like, I don't know. When I finished my NCLEX, I finished my NCLEX, I told Chris, not only did I not understand what the question was asking, I didn't understand any of the answers, like what Mm -hmm. the words were on the answers. (laughs) Still passed it. It doesn't. I'm telling you, it's just, it's very challenging. In the moment, in the test, one of the best pieces of advice I can give you is just to realize that fact that you're getting a ton wrong and that's fine. You could could be passing because they're asking you super hard questions. So just keep working at it. Keep your head up. Keep plugging. I would almost argue as like a psychological like thing. If you're getting them wrong, get excited. Just decide that that must be that they're asking you super high level questions, which means that you're doing really well. Yeah. Because if you do that, then it's just one. Every question is its own thing, and getting it wrong might be a good thing. And then you don't because that's what happens. People psych themselves out. So that being said, then rumors get start start getting spread. There is a set amount of questions, amount of questions that they'll ask you. There's a minimum amount. That you have to be asked. There's also a maximum amount that you can be asked in an adaptive test. And a lot of people learn those numbers. I think in the National Registry paramedic right now, I think it's somewhere around like 120-ish is the max max you can get. And somewhere around like 75-ish is the minimum you can get. So when people finish and it shuts off at 75, they go, oh, what that must have told me is that I did really well because I passed in the minimum amount of questions. Well, that that's not necessarily no. true. That means you could have done horrible. It might right. mean they asked you a bunch of questions. You were below the passing line. It's like it, it doesn't matter if we give him 60 more questions. Right. He's he ain't going to cut it. Right. So we're not going to give him any more questions. So or it could mean that you aced it. It might ask you somewhere in between. It might ask you the maximum amount of questions, even though you were passing at the minimum amount of question, because it wants to add more research to vet these questions for right. the next test taker. There's also a number of questions in the test that will just be garbage questions that you won't actually be graded on that they're testing to see if they can put it into their test banks at some point. Right. So there's like a lot of factors going into that. And the bottom line is it does not matter what people tell you. It doesn't matter if you shut off at 75, 85, 95, 100, 120, whatever. Maximum amount, minimum amount. None of that has any bearing on how you did. You are taking a different test than everybody else. You right. are. And it's going to feel like you're getting them wrong. Right. Yeah. So don't try to afterwards. Just take a deep breath. Wait the couple of days you got to wait. Enjoy yourself and wait for the results. And use us if you need additional help. That's yeah. what our prep program is for. Yeah. But I'm telling you, no one walks out of that test feeling great. If they do, they're lying to you. And... No one can determine based on the amount they got wrong that they did better or worse. Yeah. It's just it's just not true. The other thing I'll say, too, is with COVID, they started doing the testing from home where you can test from home. If you're taking the test from home, it's always 110 questions. Yeah. Like that's one thing. Like people are like, oh, I got 100. I got 110 Shut questions. 110. Like, do you take it from home? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's normal. So everybody, if you're taking it from home, if you're not taking it at a center, everybody gets 100 as of right now. Yeah. As of the recording of this podcast. Yes. So. All right. Cool. All right. Two more questions. All right. I'm starting EMT and my professor seems to be putting the fear of God, quote unquote, in us. This comes from Candace. She says, he tells a lot of war stories and acts like someone's going to shoot themselves in the face right in front of us in the field. Is is it that bad? And how do you prepare for something like that? Okay. So a couple of things to unpack pro- here. Yeah. Right. One this, education. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. How uh, this person's educating you. So here's the thing is that there, there uh, unfortunately is a theme and hopefully we're moving away from it, but there's this theme in especially EMS education where the 
a lot of the professors, I don't know if I should call them professors, a lot of the teachers, instructors, instructors are, you know, veteran medics or, you know, whatever they, whatever they are. And they kind of got into education because they just want to tell people about how great they were. I that's, mean, like that's be, anywhere. That's yeah, anywhere. it's anywhere. It's, it's anywhere. anywhere. It's but anywhere. And I think we're getting away from it a lot. I think we're yeah. I think we're moving towards them more. But um, <clears throat> unfortunately, like I said, I, I don't think it's an. I think sharing personal experiences is a good way to help educate. When your entire curriculum is based off of just telling your war stories, you're a bad teacher. You're just a bad. You're teacher. a bad teacher. Yeah. So I apologize, Candace, use, that that is yeah. occurring to you. Um, are you going to see traumatic things in EMS? Yeah, absolutely. Um. Is it going to be every day? Like, like, no, I mean, I think the majority of what we see is pretty normal. And just like with when it becomes normal, medicine like, job, that's one thing. Know. Yeah, that kind of stuff becomes. Normal. First of all, no, no, no medic is seeing someone blow their brains out every day in front of you or anything like that. Like, well, you say that and because you said that we'll now get seven emails to be like, I've had every five day. People yeah. shoot themselves. Well, no, I have. This I, how have had, I have had people. Commit suicide in front of me, like yeah. it has happened, and we've tried. You know, it. it and yes, it, it is traumatic, mm. but you you learn how to cope with those things. You build a support system within this, and it's really important to remember that. And, and mental health is a super, super important part. And we might do a podcast just on mental health sometime yeah. soon. But like research is research with PTSD in in medics and EMTs and things like that. Like that's all real. But understand something too, like. PTSD is a curable condition. I believe you and I have had PTSD and, and talked to people and gotten through that. And, sure, and that's fine. Sure. Like, that's not, it's not something that just haunts you the rest of your life. Like, it's a curable, treatable condition. Mm-hmm. That's a normal process to go through. You see something upsetting, it upsets you, you talk it out, you you get, you know, that quote unquote treatment, and then you're good to go. It doesn't make you crazy. It doesn't make you, it doesn't mean you have a psych issue. That's a normal way to adapt to seeing a traumatic event, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't, you don't have nightmares seven years later. You know, it goes away because you were able to talk yeah. through it. So and recognizing now, that, 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 you know, for some people who have seen horrible, well, it might be something struggle they struggle with, with sure, it for, for a long yeah. time. And they may, but, but again, I think that, yeah, like what, what you're trying to attest to here is that like the, they're, are ways to deal and cope. It's not like all of a sudden you just like, now you're thrown to the wall. You're just ruined. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah, there, yeah. there's always help. There's all, and that's why I think it's important to try to start in this field as best you can with a support system. That support system doesn't have to understand what the job's like. Mm-hmm. They just have to be supportive of you. Right. You know what I mean? And that's why I think we're very blessed with our families and with each other that like we, we can talk through those sort of things. But uh, no, I don't think that this is a, a field that you should be scared of. I don't think it's a field that's going to change you in negative ways as long as you you keep your head up. I think that it's going to change you in positive ways. I think it's one of the best fields to be in. I, th- I think you can make a huge difference. And uh, if your professor is always telling war stories, scary, spooky war stories, I would probably contest that he probably hasn't seen that much, <laughs> to be honest with you. But because it or tends to be the people that see to, stuff tend to be the quietest. Or but, just doesn't know how to do yeah, you know, plan in right. front of him, so and, he's and just using stories. We, we use personal experiences in order to connect people to education beyond that they're used to to stroke your own ego right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. and there might be some of both going on with that and i'm i'm as guilty of it as anyone as an instructor you know sometimes i'm like oh you, you got to hear about this call it was so cool you know um but no i don't think that this is something to be nervous about i think this is something that you should be excited for well another thing is that you the most traumatic things i've seen are always in like clinical setting so like i'll watch a, a movie with some like really gruesome thing and that that will bother me more sometimes than when i see 
something extremely traumatic, but I'm in the emergency department, in my element, like it becomes very clinical. I mean, like you, you kind of separate from that a little bit and it's not in an unhealthy way. It's yeah. just like you, you, you learn to have a shield up, I think. Right. Because yeah. you're, you're prepared for those sort of things. And that's like that's if I was walking deal. down yeah. the, the street and someone like got like their leg chopped off and was bleeding on the sidewalk, like that would be like way yeah. more traumatic than when someone comes in with their leg chopped off bleeding. And but I, yeah, I'm, I'm there. That's what I'm there for. And that's right. the point, you know, so. I, I just think that when it comes to this stuff, the, the biggest help is just understanding that it happens to all like if something's happening to you it has happened to somebody else too yeah. it happens to all of us part of this whole stigma and the issue with like mental health and EMS and the fire service and the medical field is just that we don't really talk about it as much i think in hospital does a little bit better than mm-hmm. we do but mm-hmm. like sometimes that like type a personality tough guy type mentality like if you have a night, I'm telling you right now, if you if you have a bad call or maybe a call that doesn't seem that bad to you, but for some reason it, it's Trigger and you have a nightmare you from it, bothers like, you I've had nightmares about calls. Yeah. Like talk to somebody about it. You don't have to yeah, talk, yeah. talk to a professional. Talk to your wife about it. Talk to yeah. talk to me about it. Send an email. Hey, this bugged me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like it just helps to talk it out and understand that those things are just normal. Those are normal responses to seeing traumatic things. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like, oh my gosh, I'm having nightmares. I must have major PTSD and now I'm in all kinds of trouble and I'm, you know, I have a psych disorder or issue like that's just not no, that's not right. what's happening yeah, yeah, like yeah. normal normal stuff right. right yeah yeah so but yeah i would not worry about every day someone shooting themselves in front of you if that's going on maybe you're having <laughs> i say if you are if someone's shooting themselves in the face every time you're around it might be <laughs> it might be a you problem so um but yeah no i i think you should be excited about this field um and I don't think if that's what is making you nervous about it, guess what? We were all nervous about that when we were starting and it's going to work out. Okay. You're going to have people to have you back. So cool. Last question of the day. This came from a surprise guest. Is there a good test prep program that I can check out to help me pass my NREMT? Well, this I'm question, so glad you asked. This question is coming from maybe you. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I'm so glad you asked. So this will be our plug. Our National Registry Prep Program, uh, we launched about less than a year ago. Almost a year. Well, no. Almost a year now. Coming up on year. year August now. something. Um, and we were nervous to put it out there because it was all fun to shoot and to put together and to build the curriculum. And then it actually had to be tested in the field. So we put it out there and we have, and this is this is just exciting for us, but we've had a, a lot of success. I mean, we, we, and I'm not talking about like financially or with, I'm, I'm saying that like our students, when they take our prep program, we get emails saying, Hey, thank you so much. I passed my exam on the first try that we have a 94% pass rate on this exam now, which is, which is great. Yeah. I mean, I'm so glad that we were able to, you know, kind of build this and put it out there. So if you're looking to study for the national register exam, whether it's EMT, advanced EMT or paramedic, or you're um, just working through school because a lot of people are using this as a supplement yeah, while they're yeah. getting lectures so that they can pass their program. The program's challenging enough, right? Yeah, yeah. So check us out, sightsandsirens.com, our prep program. They said it, it, we're excited about it. We have a lot of fun doing it too, which makes the learning, I think, a little bit more. Uh, we also now have, um, like I said, we we acquired registry ready. So we actually have some test banks now uh, and the paramedic test bank will be launching soon. So I'm excited about that. Uh, If you're an educator, uh, we do offer kind of affiliate programs. So if you have a bunch of students, like maybe you're not taking the exam, but you're an educator and you're like, hey, this could really benefit my students, please reach out to us. We do do discount codes and and packages for schools and things like that. Um, Or if you know someone who's taking the exam, like I said, please push them our way. We'd really like to help you guys out. Um, It's a lot of fun, guys. We just have a blast. Yeah. yeah. A little bit about the program. We've got over 15 hours of video content. We've got uh, like a thousand page workbook for you to work 
through and, and play around with while you're watching the videos. And then you can use that as a study tool. Uh, we do do live lectures here and there where, where Chris or I will jump on and walk you through some more complicated concepts, things like that. You get access to Chris and I. You can literally like call my cell or text me and we can talk and I can talk you off the ledge if you're about to go over the test or I can get you distracted and when, you, when you're done with it. Like we can we can support you if you have specific questions, you have access that way. Um, and we've got questions within it. So every video has got at least 10 questions attached to it. You'll take a little quiz to kind of test your learning. Each video is only about 10 to 15 minutes. So they're easy, digestible little things. They're kind of a lot like this podcast, um, a little bit more vetted, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're a little bit more on, on script for them. But uh, yeah. And then we also have that registry ready test bank for you to kind of take gross amounts of questions to try to test your knowledge and, and, and improve yourself. So it, a lot of people have seen a lot of success for it. We hope that you can be one of those people. Check us out, sitesandsirens.com. All right, guys. Well, thank you. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We will be back next week. And again, send your questions in. We'll be doing this Q&A thing uh, periodically. So if you've got questions, please don't feel uh, please feel free to reach out. Don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, training at sitesandsirens.com is where you can send those emails. We hope you guys have a good week and we will see you next time. Stay sweet. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're an EMT or medic student or an advanced EMT student or an instructor of those students, we have a program just for you. With Sights and Sirens NREMT prep program, you get video lectures over 15 hours of really vetted, great content to help you through your program and help you prepare for the test. Check it out at www.sightsandsirens.com.